0: Do you have what it takes to solve the mystery of the Firebird? Well, let's find out with The Last Express, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here?
1: Join. Die. Join.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 107 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre Windows XP gaming era. All right, so it is the last day of April, so I got in right under the wire uh, getting a show out uh, this month. So, hey, doing pretty well. Yay. Uh, it looks like since, you know, now this is the point in time where I talk about what's going on in my life and the weather, uh, it looks like spring has sprung. It's uh nice and warm today. I got out on my bike, uh, yesterday outside for the first, uh, not the first time this season, but you know, I got out my, my road bike, changed the tire, did all the stuff and, uh, you know, went out for a real bike ride, not just kicking around on sort of my, my beater, uh, my beater bike. And, uh, Yeah, you and baby, you and toddler, whatever we want to call her is doing uh, super well, impressing us more and more every day with all of her, uh, her smarts and all all that noise. And uh, yeah, so, you know, overall things are, uh, are going pretty well. So, uh, you know, I think we've got um, a lot of stuff to talk about in this episode. So let's just get right to it. Okay, so before we get rolling, we have got an email from Chris. And Chris writes, Hello, I just heard your episode on Thief. Man, I love that game. In fact, the only game I love more is Thief 2. Anyway, I just looked at your back catalog, and I was somewhat surprised to see that you have never done a show about Deus Ex, another great sneaker. Is it too young for your podcast, or is there another reason for you not to cover it? Best wishes from Denmark. We'll definitely check out more episodes. Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. And if I... Do I, I am of the belief that Deus Ex is a bit too new for what I usually cover, but actually, yeah, it's right on the edge. You know, the first game came out in 2000, which, you know, I sort of say, uh, you know, the DOS and pre Windows XP gaming era. And, again, I'm doing all kinds of wikipedia on the fly here. And, uh, you know, Windows XP was RTM'd, released to manufacturing, August 24th, 2001, and uh, generally available October 25th, 2001. So, Deus X ran on, I guess, uh, Windows 99x, I guess, probably Windows 98, Windows ME, and maybe Windows 2000. So... I can probably add this to the list. Honestly, I've never really played Deus Ex. Um you know, I know obviously there's uh Deus Ex Human Revolution is sort of I think that's the newest uh entry in that uh series. Yeah, Deus Ex, Deus Ex Invisible War, Deus Ex Human Revolution and Deus Ex Oh, sorry, that one's 2011. That's old. Deus Ex The Fall and uh oh mankind divided was the one that came out last year sorry uh yeah so you know probably if i were to cover it uh i'd focus definitely on the that first game but you know sometimes covering things that start in the era and then move out of it uh you know gives us a bit of a change of uh change of pace and stuff like that so um you know it's it's definitely uh definitely a possibility it would be entertaining watching me play it because i'm really bad at sneaking around in, uh, you know, sneaking games. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I will, uh, I will add it to the, uh, to the Trello board and, uh, you guys can vote on whether or not, uh, you want me to cover it. And, you know, I may just throw it in, uh, cause you know, I take your suggestions on what you want me to cover, but, uh, sometimes I like to mix things up. So, you know, sometimes it, it allows me to talk about like 3d graphics cards and, and, you know, more modern sort of like, you know, Pentium twos, Pentium threes, that, that sort of, Stuff and uh, yeah, always nice for a little change of pace. So that's it for the pre-show emails. Let's jump right into things.
1: You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for
0: all right. So hey, not a lot of uh, preamble this time around. So this time we've got an interesting one. The last. Express. Now, The Last Express is a single game developed by Smoking Car Productions, who is a uh, developer you may have not heard of, and uh, and it was published by someone we haven't spoken much about on this show, a Broderbund Software. And this all went down a bit later, <laughs> you know, speak of the devil, we were just talking about Deus Ex. This is also a little later in the show's usual time frame uh, in 1997. As we do, let's uh, let's talk genre. Uh, ostensibly, that's a very fancy word, but uh, it is appropriately used right now. Ostensibly, this is an adventure game. Uh, the Last Express does contain all the trappings we are used to in adventure gaming. You know, you control a single protagonist's actions through a story, and as that story progresses, you're faced with any number of challenges in a more standard adventure game, I would say. These usually take the form of puzzles, And uh, those puzzles can pretty much, as I'm fond of saying, uh, they can take any form. They may require you to have knowledge of people, places, events, or objects in and around the game world. Uh, They may also comprise things like uh, logic, timing, or even, perish the thought, reflexes in the form of every adventure gamer's nightmare, the arcade action sequence. Uh, Puzzles may or may not be solved via things like interaction, observation, collecting and acting on items in the world via, you know, some form of inventory type interface. Uh, you know, as you progress through the game, more aspects of the story are revealed to you. And, you know, until the, in the ultimate scene or confrontation or whatever type of resolution uh, you, you care to uh, think about, you know, that gets reached, that gets resolved one way or the other. And the game ends. Ends.
1: You are listening
0: to the Upper Henry Block Podcast. Okay, story time. So, the Last Express is uh, very aptly named for uh, a few reasons. The first and most obvious reason for this is this setting. Now, unlike other adventure games that span multiple locations, multiple time frames, uh, you know, have very expansive uh, geographies, if you will, of uh, this game is much tighter in scope. We'll get into that in detail a bit later, but uh, let's start at the start. So as we begin, it is July twenty fourth, nineteen fourteen, and we find ourselves in Paris, uh, more specifically at Gare de l'Est, uh, a railway station in the tenth arrondissement. If uh, you know you've been to Paris, uh, the Gare de l'Est is one of the largest railway stations in the city, and as of October fourth, eighteen eighty three it served as the starting point for the main focus of our game, the Orient Express. Yes, the last express takes place entirely aboard the six-car train on its three-day journey from Paris to Constantinople, also known as Istanbul these days. Now, this may or may not mean much to you, so let's dive a little bit deeper into things here. So even if you don't have any specific knowledge of it, most people have at least a passing recognition of the Orient Express, through its references in popular culture, from novels to movies to television shows uh, to other video game and tabletop games, all kinds of stuff. The Orient Express is referenced everywhere. Uh, The Orient Express Wikipedia page lists over 70 different references to this train. But really, what was the Orient Express? Well, To put it very plainly, it was just a regularly scheduled passenger train service. Uh, It originated in Paris, makes multiple stops up to the end of the line in Constantinople, which at that time was also known as the Gateway to the East. Now, despite the fact that the Express was touted as "Eh, just another rail service, it really was much more than that. The Orient Express itself was a comparatively luxurious train uh, its oak and teak wood passenger cars were very well appointed with comfortable sleeping surfaces, dining and smoking car, and uh, sealed baggage cars to dispense with the unpleasantness of customs checks in a Europe that uh, in you know 1914 was careening toward a state of conflict. Now, as the main linkage to the East— the express attracted an interesting and generally fairly eclectic passenger list. Uh, generally, the more well-off cultural elite of Europe, Russia, and Western Asia would find themselves uh, in the tight spaces of the enclosed train, uh, you know, mixing, sharing space in ways that had not really uh, been possible before. Uh, the Orient Express became known as a place to mix with the who's who of the Western world's influencers. Uh, this had all, this also led to a reputation of of intrigue and luxury that made the Orient Express pretty well known across the world. So historically, uh, the service ran nonstop from its inception in 1883 straight until the outbreak of World War One. Now, if we look at that starting gate, uh, date, date of the game, July 24th, 1914, and we do a little bit of math, the three-day trip takes us to July 27th, 1914. Checking another one of our history books, we see that World War One broke out, or was declared, or whatever you want to call it, on July 28th, 1914. So the train we are on truly is the last trip of the Orient Express until service resumed after the war. Uh, we really are on the last express here. So, background aside, let's talk about the setting and the story from a more adventure game perspective. So you play Robert Cath, who is an American doctor, and not all is well in your world. It turns out that uh, you became sort of mixed up in uh, some unpleasantness that resulted in the death of an Irish police officer. Uh, As a result of this, British and French authorities are on your trail as a prime suspect in this murder. Uh, You're not okay with this. (laughs) Luckily, your good friend Tyler Whitney has recently extended an invitation to you via Telegram.
1: Have come across something exceptional. More your line than mine. Depart Orient Express, 7 p.m. Friday, God or less. You're the only one I can trust. Your pal, Tyler. P.S. Hope you're not still angry about what happened in Cuba.
0: So, given your precarious legal situation, train ride seems like a pretty good idea. So, you quickly reply, saying you'll meet him on the train. Eventually.
1: I accept. Need to get out of town for a while anyway. Book double compartment in your own name. Don't mention mine. Maybe a little late. I'll meet you on the train. Kath. P.S. P.S still angry about Cuba.
0: So this leads us into the intro. Uh, We are presented with Gar and the Orient Express, and uh, the all-aboard call is sounding. A young man wearing a green jacket leans out of the train and is clearly looking for someone. Could this be Tyler? Well, based on that information that we just listened to, probably not. Either way, as the train begins to pull away, uh, the man shrugs and retreats back into, uh, into the safety of the, uh, sleeping car. So the express pulls out into the French countryside. And, uh, as it does that, we hear a motorcycle, uh, off in the distance, it quickly approaches the train. And, uh, we see that the bike has two riders, one wearing a cap and goggles and, uh, who is controlling the bike and, uh, another young, pretty well-dressed man, uh, balancing on the back uh, the bike rides up alongside the last sleeper car. And the man takes a leap Grabbing onto the railing of the exterior door, uh, he waves goodbye to his chauffeur, who turns out to be a red-haired woman. Uh, she rides off, and the man, who it turns out is Robert Kath, our main character, enters the Orient Express without being on the passenger list and most assuredly without a paid ticket. Once through the door, the game begins. After the intro, you suddenly find yourself in the game proper. It's sort of a uh, not quite an unceremonious dumping, but when, when it happened, I was sort of like, oh, okay, I am now playing the game. Uh, your first goal should, of course, be to find the double compartment that Tyler booked for the two of you without your name on it, of course. Excuse me, can you tell me which compartment is Tyler Whitney's? The American gentleman is in the first sleeping car So we view the world in what I would say, again, is is less than the standard adventure game perspective. Uh, We're not in the animated and hand-painted third-person fixed-room camera views of Sierra and LucasArts here. Uh, We see things through Tyler's eyes in first-person view. Uh, The navigation controls are more akin to, I'd say, Mist than anything. Uh, Moving the mouse to the hallway ahead will turn the cursor into a forward-pointing arrow uh clicking it will warp you forward a few feet to the next view. Generally, if there's space to do so, you can move forward, turn left or right, or make a 180 degree about face and go back the way you came. So, this is very much a game of uh finding the hot spot. Uh you can knock on doors, you can open them by clicking on uh, you know, various uh areas like the doorknob to uh, open it or just the door itself to uh, knock uh, you can talk to other passengers and staff on the train by clicking on them when your cursor turns into a speech bubble relatively standard like i said sort of Mist style or not quite tex murphy style but generally Mist style sort of uh ui uh, you also have an inventory system that actually does try to mimic the real world to some degree or at least a little bit more than uh than other games do Outside of a few small trinkets or papers, you don't really carry much on your person in this game. And if an item is too large to comfortably fit in your pocket, it uh, will actually stay in your hands, visible, when you pick it up. You can walk around holding whatever that item is, but eventually you're going to need to put it down somewhere so you can continue interacting with the world unencumbered. So, After asking the attendant where Tyler's cabin is, uh, you make your way there to find Tyler dead on the floor. Now, the mystery truly begins. Who killed your friend? What was the deal he was involved with? You're not even supposed to be on this train. What's going to happen when the conductor walks in and sees a dead passenger and a strange stowaway hanging around with his corpse? You need to act pretty fast to secure your position here and get on the path to figuring all this out. You're already a suspect in one murder. Adding another probably will not be in your best interest. Suffice it to say, without too much uh, spoileriness, one way or another, you dispose of the body, take possession of Tyler's green jacket, and assume his identity. Now, among his belongings, the only things of any real note that you find are the uh, response telegram from you that we heard earlier Uh, A large and ornate empty box and a rolled up sheet of paper with what appears to be a Russian poem beautifully written on it. The story and the mystery then continue to unfold from there. So as you progress, you really do see that the game differs very greatly from the standard adventure formula to the point where I almost wouldn't even call this an adventure game. Uh, Things unfold on the train in real time to be precise time is actually accelerated 6 times but from your point of view it's just real time uh if you simply stand in your cabin and don't move the game will unfold around you the train will make its stops other passengers will go about their business and i suspect at some point some event will cause you to hit one of the many losing endings long before you arrive in constantinople in fact i i know if you stand around and do nothing an event will occur relatively quickly that will uh That will cause you to lose the game. What you should do once the immediate danger of discovery is over and you can sort of move about a little more freely is to do that. Get out, mingle with the other passengers, observe them closely, pay attention to their interactions with you, listen in on conversations they have with each other, and generally just be an investigator almost everything said on the train, no matter how innocuous, could be a clue to someone's motivations, some underhanded scheme, or simply some information to just add color to the very rich and very detailed world that this game creates. And here is an example of some of that conversation that may or may not be of any relevance. French is so funny. Madame Cayo seems to become a sort of national heroine. Somehow, she's been transformed from an insignificant woman enslaved and overshadowed by her husband into a passionate avenger. Mm, si
1: se à créer l'histoire, d'affaire. Voilà Arrête! Tu dis toi-même qu'elle est une Madame Bovary. What counts is she's acted.
0: She's the very opposite of Madame Bovary. I'd say more Joan of Arc, really. Ooh, the English burnt at the stake. Must you always bring that up? Well, it happened. What really interests me about Madame Cayo is the way the French scandals develop so differently from English ones. Like the Dreyfus Affair. In England, the Jewish army... (laughs) Yeah. As we talked about in the story section, uh, the train hosts an Interesting cross-section of the well-to-do classes of Europe, uh, the young French and English uh, socialite girls that we just heard, uh, representatives of both czarist and revolutionary Russia, a well-off family moving east for a lucrative job, a lone Austrian singer, a frumpy, nervous German man, a Serbian, and a mysterious private car likely containing a very rich VIP among other people. Now, since the game progresses in real time, with food services and other events causing the, uh, the complement of the train to go on about their business, each playthrough will likely be slightly different from the one before. Uh, your actions, where you are at a given time, all these things do have some effect on the activities of the other passengers. One playthrough, you might overhear one conversation, but on another, you might be snooping around a compartment or in conversation with someone else when that conversation uh, was supposed to occur. So the mystery and intrigue aboard the Orient Express does offer you many opportunities to mess things up, resulting in either your arrest or your death. Now, this isn't a huge problem, though. Should you hit one of these roadblocks, you do have the ability to rewind time at any point and also to fast forward up to the latest point that you've played to. Now, this allows you the freedom to try things without fear screwing up and having to restore to a previous save. In fact, this game does not really even have the concept of save games, but more like checkpoints that get set whenever you jump to the pause screen or exit the game. But again, uh, on the pause screen, there is a sort of very ornate clock that you can use to basically scrub around to any point in the past that... uh, On the route that you want. Now, the deep, complex, and interesting story unfolds as you approach Constantinople and also the outbreak of the First World War. Now, if you've done things properly, you find out how your friend died, what his deal was, and whether or not you are in a position to fulfill it yourself. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for. Now that we've got a bit of a handle on the goings ons of the story, at least the beginnings of it, because I really don't want to spoil it. Because you know we're, we'll find out in in dev story. The story of this game really is the puzzle. So I, I I didn't I think feel like I may have already given you too much. But either way, now that we know the goings ons of the story, the gameplay, the progression, let's get a little bit. Technical now since this is 1997 and we're sort of uh, we're sort of at a weird time in PC gaming history uh, you know the Win9x era is still fresh and new and uh, still not really I don't know if it ever was but not really right now not really ideally suited to gaming however the writing was on the wall by 1997 DOS was pretty much Done. Sure, maybe you still had a DOS PC that was modern enough to run games, but as we go further and further into the 90s and further and further into the Pentiums and further and further into iterations of Microsoft's DirectX, Windows was the way to the future. As with many games of this period, the transition from DOS to Windows uh, was pretty apparent. The last Express ran on not on one, not on two, but on three separate platforms at launch, and those are DOS, Windows, and on the power Macintosh. So to run the game with, I guess, what I would call the, the least <laughs> hardware configuration possible, uh, you, of course, rolled back to good old reliable DOS. Now to run the game in native DOS mode, you needed at least DOS 6.0, Eight megs of RAM, a 4x CD-ROM, and a 486 DX2 66 megahertz or better CPU. But why would you want something better than a 486 DX2 66? That is the best computer you could possibly have. Uh, sound-wise, this game was uh, all digital sound, so you know no MIDI, no any, no Roland support, no anything like that. All you needed on uh, the sound front was a 16-bit sound card. They basically say a Sound Blaster 16 or 100% compatible. Now, graphically, and I think this is where we'll get a little bit uh, a little bit interesting. Uh, we're in the realm of SVGA, and um, interestingly, and uh, the SVGA spec is is a little bit. Uh, it's not really a spec; it's more of just like a suggestion. So, you know how we always talk about like you know EGA is three hundred twenty by two hundred sixteen colors, VGA is generally three hundred twenty by 200 256 colors, and when I talk about the beginnings of SVGA, I talk about six forty by four eighty at two hundred fifty-six colors. That is not that that two hundred fifty-six color depth is not part of the SVGA spec necessarily. Uh this game, being that it's a little bit more uh modern, uh runs in what they still call SVGA, but at six forty by four eighty and a color depth of sixteen bit, which um Basically means two to the sixteen, or sixty-five thousand five hundred and thirty-six colors. Uh, you know, two hundred fifty-six colors is is eight bit color. So that's you know two to the uh, two to the eight, which is two fifty-six, and sixteen bit two to the 16, 65,000 colors. Uh, interestingly, the manual explicitly states that you need either a graphics card which supports a VESA local bus, which I've explained in a relatively recent episode, uh, or simply PCI video. Again, here we're seeing a passing of the torch from older ISA-based interfaces, such as, you know, just more traditional ISA and VESA Local Bus, which is faster than ISA but is still an ISA-based standard, uh, to the more modern PCI cards that are still actually in some degree of use for sort of backwards compatibility reasons to this day. So reading a little bit about PCI, uh, some, some. Interesting tidbits came up, because I don't get to talk about games this modern, uh, generally, I don't usually get to talk about PCI, so I'm going to take my chance and nerd out about PCI. So, of course, PCI stands for Peripheral Component Interconnect, and it was designed to present, much like a USB To a, in, in a slightly different frame of reference, uh, it was designed to prevent, present a standard interface for peripherals to use to communicate with a processor. Uh, the thing I didn't really realize is that all peripheral devices talk on the PCI bus, whether they are on board or peripherals installed in expansion slots. I, I always thought that it was just the expansion slots that use the PCI bus. But uh, you know, on board devices, especially these days, like sound cards, network cards, modems, USB or serial expansion ports, all that stuff, if they are on the board, were referred to as planar devices. That is, they are on the same plane as the PCI bus, uh, either soldered to the board as integrated circuits or, uh, or other things like that. In addition, your standard PCI expansion cards that we're all used to also fall into this same processor bus pipeline. And in this way, all of the peripherals attached to a machine, whether they came on the motherboard or you added them after the fact, are handled via the same communications mechanism. So, PCI was replacing ISA for common applications and also uh, replacing VESA Local Bus on the graphics front. Now, while the PCI interface was faster than traditional ISA, it was not actually faster than VESA Local Bus. In fact, in some cases, it was even ever so slightly slower. However, The fact that video card manufacturers and other peripheral manufacturers as well could build a single interface or build to a single interface and a single specification, that was worth sort of the the technology conversion, even though they weren't getting a lot more in uh, performance. Now, on top of that, the other major advantage that PCI had over older interfaces, and I I totally remember this being a, a huge selling point, was auto configuration, which Microsoft or Windows or whatever just dubbed plug and play. Now with older ISA cards, I'm sure a lot of you remember all this, uh, you had to put, you know, install the card in the slot and then manually install drivers and start trying to configure, you know, your your IRQs and your DMAs and uh, and all of that, uh, basically telling the computer, hey, I just installed this particular thing and I installed it here and these are the settings that you should use to access it and you know that (laughs) tended to be uh sometimes an exercise in frustration so with PCI at boot the system's BIOS basic input output system that you know American megatrends big gritty thing that you would see when you boot the uh the computer would query the PCI bus and ask each device hey who are you Tell me about yourself. <laughs> it would then auto-configure all the various, you know, memory and inter- input-output requirements for each one. And if it could, it also had a little bit of space in memory uh, to publish basic device identification that the operating system, you know, Windows 95, Windows 98, whatever, could, uh, could go and query... And that would allow it the opportunity to, you know, look in its list of pre-installed drivers and say, "Oh, hey, I have an ATI Rage sixty four driver. Let me just use that because that's what this thing tells me it is." Or at least it could also start an interaction, saying, "Hey, I found this, you know, fifty six k modem. Uh, do you have a driver disk for it? Because I know what it is, but I don't have a driver for it." So this wonderful, fully common interface lasted a few years until graphics cards as usual started outstripping the bandwidth of conventional pci and began to adopt the newer faster agp or advanced graphics port standard around 2005 look at me talking about the mid aughts that's pretty uh, i'm jumping into the future in this episode so now all that to say because sometimes i like going on tangents like that uh the last express Wanted you to have a Super VGA monitor and graphics card, and uh, you know, though the game's color palette is relatively simple given its its rotoscoping animation and Art Nouveau style that we're going to talk about in the dev story, the higher resolution and availability of multiple shades of colors really does add a richness and a realism to every scene. Now, if you are up with the times, putting DOS behind us. And you wanted to run the game natively in, I guess in 97, you'd be in Windows 95. And God knows I didn't want that at the time. I was like, God, this is horrible. Please give me back DOS mode so my games don't run like crap. Uh, You did need a bit more power. At least a Pentium 60 megahertz. You needed 8 megs of RAM as a minimum. However, they recommended 16 megs. And oddly, at least in the game manual, the Windows version specified the need of a mouse, where the DOS version does not specify that requirement. However, I could not find any evidence that you could play the DOS version without a mouse. Uh, Outside of that, graphics and sound requirements were the same. Now, just because it was in there and I record this podcast on a Mac, the Mac side of the world to get the game to run you needed a power mac running system 7.1.2 or better and 16 megs of ram with 9 megs unused i'm not 100% sure how the uh mac operating system of that time you know system 7 system 8 system 9 i think was the last one uh handled memory i don't i don't believe it had the same concept of conventional memory and you know extended expanded high memory, all, all that stuff. So I think it was just more of a bigger memory pool and you just needed to have some available. But hey, this isn't a Mac podcast and I don't know anything about the, the guts of uh, those. OS X, I could probably talk to you a little bit more about, but uh, or Mac OS as it's called these days. But uh, yeah, that's way off topic. So we won't talk about that. Now, technical stuff, great. PCI, great. System requirements, great. Outside of uh, all of that, Another really great, really immersive, really cool aspect of The Last Express was the stuff that you have been hearing, uh, the soundtrack, the music. It was composed by Czech composer Elias Miral. Uh, He attended the Prague Conservatory where he studied the double bass, which I think is, I'm not sure what double bass is. Is that that like double guitar from the 80s? Anyways, I'll have to Google that or someone can, uh, can correct me because I don't feel like you would do uh, a degree in uh, the double guitar. And, uh, you know, on top of the double bass, whatever it may be, he also, of course, studied composition. Uh, he eventually moved to the U.S., re-attended University of Southern California, and uh, he is perhaps best known for scoring horror and thriller films uh, such as Ronin, Stigmata, and the ever-popular Piranha 3 d uh, the Last Express was his first video game project, and outside of scoring the game, uh, he had to you know, undergo a pretty steep learning curve around writing music and themes for, uh, for a PC game project. It's a totally different medium from uh, what he was used to. Uh, he also realized that he had to come up with some overarching uh, musical cues and musical themes uh, that were unique for uh, many of the game's 35 characters. Holy crap, there's a lot of characters in this game. Uh, So his scoring of The Last Express definitely lends uh, to the air of tension and mystery that uh, the game puts out. Now, while the score is generally fairly orchestral with a little bit of uh, synth elements thrown in here and there, a lot of emphasis is placed on the violin to the point of having a full piano and violin concerto partway through the game, which, uh, you know, should you decide to forego some good snooping opportunity while people are distracted, is actually really pleasant to listen to. Uh, the game soundtrack was put out on CD, I believe, around the year 2000, and uh, I've been listening to it on loop while I prepped this show. It's very, very good.
1: You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Development
0: okay dev story time so the last express is the brainchild of one of, of the game industries giants who i have yet to speak about on this podcast at all jordan mechner now mechner was born in new york city in 1964 and he attended yale university he has the boorish manner of a Yaley. he graduated in 1985 uh it was during his time at yale that he started writing some small games for the Apple II, sort of teaching himself how to program because, you know, it seemed like a fun pastime. Uh, His first two attempts, an Asteroids clone and an arcade action game, were both quickly rejected by publishers. However, Broderbund, who had rejected his action game that uh, he had entitled Death Bounce, gave him uh, a copy of one of their best-selling games, Choplifter, As a sort of consolation prize, like, oops, sorry, uh, you should learn to make better games. Play Choplifter. Uh, Playing Choplifter actually led him to the conclusion that instead of trying to remake games that had already been made, uh, as he'd been doing while he was, you know, finding his feet and learning how to program, he might actually be better off making a game that contained original gameplay concepts. Hey, what a novel idea! uh you know through his studies as a film student at Yale uh along with his participation in various clubs cuz you got to do that when you go to Ivy League schools apparently and also his recent completion of some karate lessons he decided to create a game that focused around karate uh he dove deep into the history and lore of karate in addition to uh you know various pieces of karate themed art uh you know some Uh, Asian woodblock art and also film including silent films and uh, you know the uh, karate samurai Kurosawa uh, type films his goal attributable to his film major and obvious love of film was to create a very cinematic experience with fluid animation emotional scenes and music basically the whole nine yards he wanted to make an interactive movie on an apple II, of course the Apple II, I know from experience, being that the Apple II was my first computer, was was a pretty limited uh, platform, and you know he had to work within those limitations to do what he wanted to do. Uh, the system could only put out eight frames per second of animation, and to get those eight frames out of the computer, you could not play music while animation was happening. So you really could not render very complex scenes. Despite this. Uh, he would accomplish his task. Uh, The art and animation in his karate game, Karateka, 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 Karateka. That sounds gross. Anyways, Karateka (laughs) was, uh, you know, it was immensely fluid, even by today's standards, animation-wise. He accomplished this via rotoscoping, which is an effect that would become a hallmark of his games. Uh, Basically, to animate the combatants in Karateka, which is what I'm going to call it, Uh, he took film of a karate instructor and uh, hand drew animation over each frame of film of the instructor performing you know, various moves and stances that uh, you see in the game. These drawings would then be digitized and interpolated down to the eight frames per second that the Apple II could put out. So after two years of working between Yale classes, Mechner completed karateka and submitted it to Broderbund, who picked up both the game and Mechner as an employee. Uh, The game sold very, very well. Now, with Karataka's success under his belt, he embarked on a three-year journey, a full three-year full-time journey this time, to deliver his next, and likely his most iconic game, Prince of Persia. Now, I'm not going to dive too deep here, as Prince of Persia is uh, at the top of the two-cover list, uh, but suffice it to say that it refined many of the techniques that Mechner had discovered working on Karataka, most notably more rotoscoping. This time, uh, the animation was based mostly on video of his brother running and jumping around in swashbuckler clothes. (laughs) Prince of Persia basically created the genre of the cinematic platformer, and according to popular belief, at least, pretty much defined Mechner's legacy. Uh, in 2012, Mechner even released the 6502 Assembler source of, uh, of Prince of Persia on GitHub. Prince of Persia released in 1989, and in the wake of this even bigger success, Mechner did what most of us would do, and stepped back from the gaming industry for a few years. Uh, during this time, he went back to film school and wrote a screenplay, which remains unpublished, and traveled Europe. Uh, he returned to the industry, designing and directing Prince of Persia 2, which released in 1993. Uh, his sabbatical had sort of pushed his interests out of the uh, the nuts and bolts of assembly language programming and into a more creative-only role. So yeah, he was more in, in the design and the direction and uh, and those aspects of uh, the game. So with the release of his third commercial game, Mechner finally decided that it was time to strike out on his own and truly make the cinematic type of game he had always dreamed of making. He felt that technology had reached a point where uh, he could probably start to invest in things and, uh, and do what needed to be done to really bring his visions to uh, life. So he said goodbye to Broderbund and formed Smoking Car Productions that same year, 1993. So Mechner's time in Europe that he had spent on his sabbatical, and Paris specifically provided him with inspiration for his next project. He wanted to make a game that took place on the Orient Express. Now, much like Agatha Christie's novel, he felt that uh, the Express was the perfect setting, especially in its heyday before it stopped running uh, at the outbreak of the First World War. He was very determined to set his game around the time of that conflict, as you know, he sort of found that uh, you know the history and the tensions and the politics of that era were very fascinating. Uh, you know, before the outbreak of the First World War, Europe was was at a crossroads. Tensions were high. Russia was transitioning from the old czarist regime to something new. The Balkans were rife with unrest. Uh, you know, it really felt like it was a time period that offered so much storytelling opportunity, but it was constantly overshadowed by the following conflict the second world war about which you know we have countless games and other media probably because you know it was more recent it was a more modern war there's more there were more people around that that had been you know that had experienced it and and things like that so you know the goal was not just to create an adventure game in in the traditional sense but more to create a uh, an interactive, I guess, you know, they call it interactive movie, but really it's a story and a mystery that would unfold around you. So to this end, it was decided that The Last Express would unfurl in some semblance of real time. Like I said, it is a compressed version of real time, but still real time. So this means that each of the game's 35 characters have minds of their own. Their actions are not directly dictated by your action. Unlike more traditional adventure games, where most non-player characters sort of stick in one place and offer the same information regardless of how many times you ask them until some event triggers them to say something else. Uh, You know, characters in The Last Express were designed to move about the train on their own schedule with their own motivations with the player's action, potentially adjusting that schedule, but generally having them do their own thing. Now, Mechner and his team, which eventually on this game grew to 60 people felt this real-time aspect would absolutely increase replayability. Each time you replay The Last Express, your experience would be a little bit different. So while the technical aspects of the game were being developed, a massive ton of research was being put into the back end. So, you know, one of the main reasons Mechner was interested in setting a game aboard the Orient Express was was sort of a question of of scope and of uh ability to create detail. So, you know, as we've seen from his previous three games, uh, you know, Jordan Mechner's sort of a stickler for, for realism, for precision, for background. So, the research and thought, you know, that he had put into Karataka and Prince of Persia is really what part of what made them successful. Uh, now that he had the medium of the CD-ROM, he had 3D rendering, he had a large art team, he wanted his representation of the last express of the Orient Express to be as true to life as possible. Now, at the time in kind of 1993, 1995, when the game was being created, the Orient Express was actually still running. Now, obviously, not with the same train or the same cars that were around in 1914, but, but you know, there was a train running on the route that was called the Orient Express. So, this triggered a search for reference material. Uh, the team wanted very much. To be able to find, uh, you know, the original cars or so similar cars to the uh, original cars that uh, were on that original route up until 1914 from Paris to Constantinople, and you know, you'd think, hey, there's a lot of old trains lying around, but this was actually a lot harder than they expected it to be. So it turns out that the Orient Express existed in two major iterations: the original train wooden cars made of teak, and that was all before the war. Post-war, the train was upgraded to pull steel cars, go faster, and blah blah blah, and sadly, it seemed that none of those wooden cars had survived the bombings and the devastation of, of the First World War. Not to be deterred, though, they put out a call through communities of train aficionados and eventually struck Gold, a teak sleeper car very similar to the ones running the Orient Express, was known to exist in a train yard in Athens, so the team got permission to uh, to board it from a, a fairly confused uh, train yard staff, and uh, they combed over every inch, taking notes, taking photos, and generally observing every minute detail they could while they were there. Now, this amazing piece of source material is the one and only reason that the game's environment really looks as great and as accurate as it does. Now, a more traditional adventure game, as I've said, would have a huge number of locations, at times multiple locations across the world. You know, I'm sort of thinking like real night stuff like that. Uh, in The Last Express, the only locations where you interact with anyone is aboard the cars of the train. Again, not having to draw, color, render, research, create hundreds of screens in dozens of locations... Allowed the team to really, really, really focus on those details. Uh, the attention to detail rolled into the rest of the game's art as well. As explained previously, uh, you know, outside of cutscenes where you do see yourself in the third person doing stuff, you experience the game through Kath's eyes. Uh, the game's art was purposefully done in the Art Nouveau style. Now, I'm no art aficionado, but as far as I can see, uh, a lot of Art Nouveau has to do with uh, animated figures comprised of dramatic curves and large swaths of solid color. Uh, this both translated very well into a computer game and also translated very well into the time period as Art Nouveau was was certainly one of the more popular art styles at the time the game was set in. So the fact that they're doing a game that takes place in 1914 and representing the game in an art style that is, you know, that was popular in 1914 sort of works pretty well. So, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, for this game, Mechner and the team continued on his trajectory of using rotoscoping uh, to create the game's art. So, in a 22 day film shoot, uh, the team shot all the actors doing all the actions that you see uh, in the game against a blue screen. The actors all wore a uh, distinctive makeup. To sort of make them look more animated, sort of like uh what you see cosplayers doing when they try and cosplay as characters from like Archer or uh you know some of the Borderlands uh people, sort of like very flat white makeup with uh almost like polygonal uh shading, you know, under their cheekbones and, and stuff like that. It actually looks sort of creepy when you see the uh some of the photos from the shoot. So they then took this footage that they shot and fed select frames through an in-house process that would translate the uh, the blue screen frames into black and white line drawings that would then be manually colored in by the art team. So by the end of the, the, the production, the game contained over 40,000 frames of hand-colored animation. So if you played the game at all, the art style, the rendered backgrounds, the sound design, the filmed actors do really come together very, very well to make it feel like you are on a fairly cramped passenger train in 1914. Uh, Outside of few of the characters, most speak in their native languages with, uh, you know, subtitles. If they speak a language Robert understands, it would appear he understands French and he does not understand Russian. Uh, As people pass you in the tight train car, they say, excuse me. They look you directly in the eye. Uh, Any print publications, be they schedules, forms, newspapers, handwritten notes, telegraphs, all look very, very, authentic. So with all this work and all this research and all this writing and music and everything else that the 60 person team put into it, The Last Express finally released in 1997, five years after Smoking Car Productions had been created. Uh, The game released on three CDs across three platforms and received great reviews. So now you ask yourself, hey, if this game was so damned revolutionary and reviewed so damn well, well, why didn't I play it? Well, as it turns out, business happened. Uh, right before the game came out, the publisher, Broderbund, had its entire marketing team quit. Whoops. So, <laughs> outside of a press release and some nice words from Broderbund was oh, we just released this revolutionary game, almost no advertising was done for The Last Express. And, uh, you know, add to that uh, a deal with another publisher that fell through, uh, which reduced a bunch of uh, a bunch of release uh, opportunities and uh, eventually the acquisition of Broderbund by the learning company who had very little interest in distributing the game. And all of a sudden, less than a year after the game came out, you can't find it on shelves. It's not in print anymore. So with the critical success, but commercial failure of the game, smoking car productions was forced to shut its doors. So where can you get the last Express today? Well, oddly, despite its status as a commercial failure, you can get this game a lot of places. Uh, in 2011, a collector's edition of the game, including the soundtrack, a walkthrough, and uh, a making of video, was released on GOG by Phoenix Licensing, who, through you know all that licensing stuff, eventually got their hands on the rights to the game. Uh, In 2012 and 2013, iOS and Android ports of the game were released. And also in 2013, a gold edition was released on Steam with, uh, you know, some quality of life improvements, UI, a hint system, blah, blah, blah.
1: Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence
0: okay so we have one uh voicemail which is good because it's relatively lengthy from uh my good pal greg of the snes podcast so greg does not just play snes games he also played the last express so take it away greg
1: hello joe and fellow podcast listeners greg aka Soul Blazer here i wanted to drop A quick message about about this game, since you're covering one of my favorite games, uh, PC games of all time, that is, in your podcast this time, The Last Express. I did not play this immediately when it first came out. I picked this game up as part of a uh, bargain uh, sale that Interplay, for some reason, was having several years after the game came out. Maybe Interplay got the rights to release the game later on as part of a budget release? I'm not really quite sure about that. But anyway, that's how I got my copy of it. Um and i really fell in love with the game right away I'm a, i am a fan of adventure games anyway and uh and this is definitely an underrated gem whenever anybody asks me about some like you know some great classic pc games that that may have gotten overlooked i always bring up last express because it's a very like unique game uh, i'm not even, i'm not even like really sure like where to start talking about how good this game is um, uh, uh, to start off with, the graphics are just absolutely gorgeous. They're done in that really uh, classic Jordan Meshner style, similar to what he used for Prince of Persia. And they're of that style that always looks good in a game, no matter how old the game is. There really, really hasn't been anything quite like this game, uh since it came out in 97 hard to it's hard to believe it's, it's, it's 97 because it doesn't because it doesn't really look like a game that old but uh yeah there have been some indie games that have used similar graphic styles in recent years but nothing really quite quite up to this scale and and it really shows um the whole atmosphere of the game of the move on the move on the train is just, like just amazing um, I'm a history major, so I definitely eat up this stuff as far as the background and the history, history of this game, because you're, because because the name implies you're on the last Orient Express going from Paris to Paris to Constantinople before before the train got shut down on World War One. This game takes place the days right before the war started, and you could read about it. They had the things happening in the newspaper and hearing the conversation of the the people on the train about it. So there's all kinds of extra history and and, uh, and in depth stuff they go into in this game. if you want to. Not required, but it certainly helps helps to add to the fun and the atmosphere. And speaking about that, the conversations and the languages used in this game are just amazing. Uh, there's numerous languages you can hear as you as you go about the train, uh, French being the most common, but you also hear a lot of uh, Russian, German, and Turkish as you also go through the game. Everything's subtitled so you can understand everything like pretty like pretty easily. But just hearing all the languages really ha- helps to add to the atmosphere and the nuance, uh, like of this game. Uh, your character is fleshed out to a degree in the sense you know who he is, where he's from, uh, what he's possibly on the run for, that kind of stuff. But it doesn't really fill in all the pieces, which allows you to kind of use your imagination to kind of, t- your imagination for t- to, t- t- to fill them in as you want to, and kind of create the kind of version of Cath, uh, uh, the, kind of of the main character uh, that you want to play as, because you're not told everything, so you can kind of let, let use your imagination to figure out uh, kind of in between the gaps, which, which which really helps you to add the sense of adventure, role-playing that this game has. The game's linear in the sense that everything drives you toward the game's, the game's final good ending, uh, but there's often numerous ways, or, I should, or well, I should say several ways at least, to solve a problem. Uh, for example, early on in the game, Game, there's two different ways to be able to get rid of a dead body you find and also later on there's two different ways to be able to hide the, 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 to hide the, to hide like in the police but you only have to deal with the police if you chose one of the, if you chose one option for dealing with the body so and everything kind of mixes together like that and also the game takes place in real time. So there's always things happening on the train uh you can't be you can't be everywhere at once, so this like that encourages replaying the game several times to be able to hear all the different conversations and conversations and be able to try the different aspects uh and, and and game plot options to be able to go through the whole game and see everything so that really helps to helps to add a little bit more replay value to an adventure game, which normally does not have much to replay value once you finish the game the first time around um the music and sound effects are limited but they do a great job of kind of adding to the atmosphere like the boat up uh, the build up the game especially the tension. Uh, the tension music like when something very really, over uh, something very really bad's about to happen like it's a great look at this game um, so there are some there are a couple of weak pot uh, uh, sorry weak spots to the game I, I really don't think it is anything too bad but uh, the controls are a little bit cl- clunky. I mean, this is an old game after all, so it's a flight to be kind of a bit expect, uh, expected. And like many adventure games, there are some very, um, uh, hot point, picky areas. We have to have the mouse in this very specific small area to be able to find an object or, or, or to be able to find a clue. It's not. It's not horrible in this game. There are adventure games like I can think of that are, do, do that much worse. Uh, but it's something. But it's something like to be like aware about. For overall c- c- difficulty, I'd say this game is probably medium, as far as the adventure game scale goes. To uh, there's also several fight scenes in this game, and they're kind of clunky. There are, however, uh, secret uh, cheat spots on the screen. On the screen, like when you know where to go, we can. do it. Uh, We can just move your mouse to that part of, uh, part of the screen, part of the screen, and click it, and you'll automatically bypass the fight scene, which is like a cool feature. So, it's like something I'm grateful like about that, at least. Um... So yeah, and so uh, and also the, the the final weak point is like would be the game's somewhat short if you know what you're doing if you if you just plan the game at max speed and know what to do uh, it's a it's a very short game otherwise it's not really that long anyway but I'd say maybe an average an average gameplay walk through time for 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 somebody first for first go through the game is maybe about like eight to ten hours. Uh, you know, like shorter if you're good at adventure games and you kind of know uh, what to do in, the, in games, this in and games, oak and that kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah, this is really an underrated classic. It's really too bad this game didn't sell uh, better than it did. It did not sell very well at all, unfortunately. So I would love to have seen like more games come out like in this style, but uh, well, that, that, well uh, yeah, that never happened. Um, anybody who likes adventure games, highly recommend it to, to, to play this game. Uh, if you enjoy murder games or mystery games particularly, this game is also highly recommended because, like I said, it's an adventure game. But it's not overly complex. Um, like you know, like um, you know, I was able to first time the first time I played it, I was able to puzzle through everything. Um, oh, and 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 one last other great thing about this game, uh, I love the auto point save system the game uses. It's very, very advanced for 1997. Uh, it's very similar to how modern games often do, like uh, automatic checkpoint saves. Uh, it really helps in this game to be able to to muddle through the game, because if you make a mistake, you don't get thrown back that far, and you're thrown back far enough, however, to be able to solve the problem that caused you to die in the first place. So, kudos for that. Very forward-thinking games in several ways, and just really just kind of a twilight to the adventure game period, because adventure games were all the rage in the late 80s and 90s, thanks to things companies like Sierra um, and uh, LucasArts and that kind of stuff, and this is kind of the twilight song, I think, for that, for that time period it so yeah definitely a great great game I uh, highly recommend it to anybody out there who enjoys adventure games and a, uh, um, I'm glad and very really glad to see you covering this game Joe um, um, so, so, uh, so, 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 so I certainly hope that you got some enjoyment out of this game as well because I absolutely love it so thanks again for giving me a, a, a few minutes every day and take care everybody
0: well thank you so much Greg that was a great uh, great summary great great memories great uh great opinions and all of that and if you guys ever want to send in uh, a voicemail greatly appreciated and uh yeah just record them like that and fire them off
1: you are listening to the Upper Block Podcast.
0: wow you know it's funny whenever i uh i prep these shows i'm always like Ugh, i'm never gonna find anything to talk about with these uh with these games and it's not gonna be, you know, I'm not gonna be able to fill out a whole show and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden I've been talking for an hour. So I guess uh, I shouldn't doubt myself because I always end up finding something to say. Uh, So down to it, does The Last Express hold up today? And maybe the more basic question here is, is The Last Express still fun? Well, let me put it this way. I had no experience with this game and had no idea what to expect from it. And damn it, if I wasn't pleasantly surprised. Uh, the attention to detail put into this game, as I've mentioned you know, repeatedly, is apparent all the way through in all aspects of it. Uh, the atmosphere on the train, the ambiance of overhearing conversations in, you know, whether you're in the same car or through doors, Uh, the noise of the train, the very moving music, the great voice acting from the massive cast of characters is totally engrossing. Uh, The Art Nouveau style and more sort of comic book-like still frame animation gives the game a distinctive, timeless look that uh, I think Greg even mentioned it in his uh, voicemail. You know, it, it sort of makes it look, at least to me, really like like an indie game that came out you know this year. Uh it also helps that the main character's voice sort of reminds me of Nathan Fillion. Again, that's just my opinion. Uh, I don't know, I sort of found it comforting. Uh the game has humor, it has intrigue, it has tension, it has mystery. Uh the fact that everything unfolds in real time is just very cool and very unique. I don't really feel like uh another adventure game has done it in sort of the same way as effectively. Like I know, you know, games like, like Blade Runner and stuff sort of have this, like these trappings of real time, but really it's just like these events that would tend to expire. It's not the whole game taking place, uh, in a, in a timer. So, you know, if you're interested in a mystery, if you're interested in the very intriguing time leading up to the start of world war one, If you like playing a fun and interesting game, play The Last Express. I don't think you're going to regret it. So, that's that. Uh, Thanks for hanging out with me. Yet again, thanks to those who sent stuff in. Next time. I'm going to be going back to a more familiar developer, but with a less familiar genre, I'm planning to cover Sierra's Dr. Brain series of edutainment titles. I'm pretty sure this is the first uh, set of edutainment games I cover in, uh, you know... (laughs) six years of this uh, of this show. So with that in mind, you please are very highly encouraged to send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thank you to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at MoyerMultimedia.com. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. You can check out the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes that we've done at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Find the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And uh, you can also find the show on YouTube over at youtube.com slash umbcast. I've actually really ramped up uh, the stuff that I'm doing over on the YouTube channel. You can find uh, two uh, last express sort of research partial playthrough videos. Uh, I started doing a couple of streams here and there, uh, streamed a bunch of SimCity 2000 and I very recently completed, uh, I guess what I will call my first officially completed, uh, let's play or UMB plays, if you want to call it that, of uh, Wing Commander Two. It's an eight-part series where I play through the entire game. Uh, came out over eight weeks, and it uh, it just wrapped up last week. So if you want, go over there, check me out. If you want to want to watch me play through uh, through Wing Commander Two, I've got another series up and coming and uh yeah so tons of stuff going on over at the youtube channel uh you can subscribe to the show on itunes stream us live at stitcher radio all that stuff so that is that and we will see you next time with dr brain here in the upper memory block battle control terminated You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information
1: on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com.
0: Write to Joe
1: today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com.
0: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here?
1: Join.